for context, I'm going to read one of the portions of the resurrection account from the Gospels, and then we will turn our attention to the one verse that I'd like to focus on this morning out of Romans chapter 10. I'll invite you to stand, if you would. From Luke's Gospel in the 24th chapter, hear what the Apostle Luke records. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men standing by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living? Among the dead, he is not here, but is risen. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church of Rome, says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. And it's given in love. Let's pray. So, Father, you're in the business of putting broken things back together and raising dead things to life. Do that this day, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would. Given that it is Thursday was opening day for the Rangers, I thought it was appropriate for me to brush up on some baseball trivia. Those of you that know me well sense the awkwardness of this moment because I don't deal well in sport trivia, but I'm going to try. So Ted Williams who was the last baseball player to bat over 400 in a regular season. When Ted Williams died, a fight broke out among his children. One of his daughters wanted to have her father cremated and his ashes scattered off the Florida coast. But his son and his other daughter wanted to put their dad on ice, literally. So they took the body and they rushed the body to a cryogenic lab in Scottsdale, Arizona, and they had him cryogenically frozen. He remains there today in a tomb of liquid nitrogen, frozen at negative 350 degrees. So this begs the question, why would his family go through such incredible lengths to try and overcome death? Here's the reality for you and I. When you think about original blueprints, when you think about how this world was designed, how you and I 
were designed to operate. Death was not part of the equation. Death is the enemy. Um, N.T. Wright, who's a theologian over in Great Britain, says this. He says, death is an intruder, a violator of the creator's good world. The creator's answer to death cannot be to reach some kind of agreement or compromise. Death must be and in the Messiah has been and will be defeated. The Apostle Paul gave us in our text today a very simple but very profound so what. See, here's the thing. It's not enough to just be convinced uh, that the resurrection is true and that all the accounts are true. That's great, but that's not enough. The Apostle Paul offers the so what to the equation. So what are we supposed to do with this? If the resurrection is true, if, if Jesus is who he says he is, Paul says, There's something that we're to confess. There's something we're to believe so that we can be saved. So so what are we to confess? Here's the first thing I want you to see. Paul says in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Did you know that the Bible uses the word Lord both in in the Hebrew in the Old Testament and in the Greek in the New Testament? The Bible uses the word Lord over 7,000 times. When you think about how much, how often the Bible uses that phrase, it's, it becomes pretty apparent that it's a, a really important idea. It's a really important concept. So what does it mean for God to be Lord? So for starters, it's a personal, it's a personal name. God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 as the Lord. Moses says to the bush that's on fire but's not being consumed, and the bush has told him, Go to Egypt and rescue my people. Moses says, who do I say sent me? And God says through the burning bush, tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am sent you. I am is a personal name. It's God's personal name. God is not a, God's not an abstract concept. He's not aloof. He's not a disconnected force. God is an actual personal God. And and this is really important for us to understand because all around us we hear that the world moves from the personal to the impersonal, right? The world, we, we hear all around us that the world moves from the personal to the impersonal. You and I, rocks and trees, beef brisket and sunrises, are just matter, motion, space, and time. They're ultimately impersonal, and they're ultimately nothing. But the Bible doesn't agree with this formulation of the world at all. The Bible doesn't think that the world moves from from personal to impersonal, but quite the opposite, that the world moves from impersonal to personal. The Bible teaches that Matter and motion and space and time are ultimately tools used by one great person to organize and run the universe that he has made. But in the 
fall, in, in sin entering the world, you and I uh, experience the world becoming a disordered place. Ultimately, we believed the lie that we should be at the center of the universe and the ultimate judges of our world and our wants. We thought that we should be king. We still try to rule as kings, don't we? Every day we try and rule as if the world revolves around us. My 15-month-old rules as if the world revolves around her. So far, my 3-year-old and my 7-year-old have not grown out of it, and neither has the 3-year-old up here. We pursued our own purposes and our own plans at the expense of anything and anyone else. Do you know why you agree to do something else that someone wants you to do generally? It's because either it doesn't inconvenience you or ultimately serves you in some way. You and I do this all the time. We, we, we have set ourselves up as, as rulers and as kings and as the ultimate authority of our world. And the Bible says nothing could be further from the truth. We've rejected the kingly rule of God and instead substituted ourselves in as king. And it has, upon final analysis, gone pretty terribly. There's actually no, there's no redeeming facet of our attempts to rule and govern our world. So when Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, part of that is is a repudiation of ourselves. If Jesus is the Lord, if Jesus is the King, that means by default there can only be one ruler, there can only be one King. So follow me on this one. If Jesus is King, You and I are not king. We're not the ruler. We're not the one in charge. And and God, the creator, the sustainer, the maker, the ruler of all things, it, it is God who not only has the might to rule and the right to rule, but is the only one who is qualified to rule. So what type of God is this? What type of God is this that, that sustains the universe with his, with his very word and at the same time could wipe us all out if he wanted to? Is he the wrathful God of the, that, that we always read about, the sinners in the hand of an angry God from, from Jonathan Edwards' only sermon that ever gets talked about in English lit? He had a lot of others, by the way. They're really good. You should read them sometime. Is God the wrathful, vengeful warring God who hates sinners? Well, it is true that that God is a holy, a just, a righteous God and that sin is a big deal. But if you think ultimately that the character and the nature of God is one who just sits up there grinding his teeth in sheer anger because because of people like you and I, you miss the fact that the Bible not only says that God is holy and just, but God is merciful and kind and compassionate. That is, how does that show up in the equation? It shows up in this way. God could have wiped us out, and, 
for trying to usurp his rule, but he didn't. He, he sent his son Jesus to be the Lord and the king, to be one of us and take the punishment of sin due to us on behalf of us. This is what God does. This is how God displays his rule. His son Jesus comes and empties himself and takes on human flesh and lives a righteous and innocent life. For those of you that were here at our Good Friday service, you'll remember in John's account of Jesus' passion in John chapter 19, Pilate goes back to the people and says, I find no fault in him. What has he done? And the people, do you know what they said? He said he's our king. We don't want him to be our king. Kill him. Because that's what you and I do when people get in our way, right? We may, we may not do it outwardly. I'm not trying to say that you're all mass murderers. That's a, not the way to win friends and influence people. Um, but we do it in our heart, don't we? We push people out of the way. We don't let anything stand in the way of what we want. Because ultimately, the world's about us and what we want. And nothing's going to get in that way. Go back to Exhibit A. I guarantee you that's worked out terribly in your life. So, to confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's king, that he's the head, that he's the ruler, that he's the one setting the agenda, that he's the one in charge, and that we are not, is the first thing that Paul says. But the second thing is we're called to believe. So what does it mean to believe? Well, first of all, Dead kings don't rule anything. Dead kings don't rule anything. Paul says, if you, if, and believes in your heart that God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. This, this part is inconceivable enough. It's absurd. Um, one author said it this way. He said, the Easter story is the most bizarre and apparently foolish thing ever taught. If you think, like for those of you that are, that are conspiracy theory types like me, um, and by the way, to the, to the NSA agent that has to like watch me, I'm really sorry. Um, if you believe that the, the way that like this whole conspiracy was going to go down was that the church was going to make up a story about their king who was um, killed a, a, a traitor's criminal's death and then stashed in a grave and then rose, like resurrection wasn't on their radar. You understand that, right? Like for us, we've been around it enough that it's just the story, but it wasn't on their radar. Resurrection wasn't a part of the story. Resurrection um, in, in Judaism was something that God did to the whole nation of Israel, but not one person. Resurrection wasn't something that they would have considered to have been a, a viable thing. And so for, for this, it's the most absurd, it's the most ridiculous part of the story, it would seem. And let's just think for a minute about Jesus' devoted followers. How were they doing counting down the days until resurrection day? No one had Sunday on the calendar. No one woke up early in the morning and said, hey, everybody, it's resurrection day. No. No, everyone was sad. And everyone was hiding. 
Even the visit to the tomb was conducted in the early hours of the morning. And, and, and go back to Luke 24 that we just read. Why were they going to the tomb? Not because they were expecting resurrection. They're going to bring spices and perfume and embalm the corpse because that's what you do when people die. They weren't looking for a body to be raised. They weren't looking for the grave to be open. The scandal of it all was that Jesus was alive. We see, this, we see this scandal work out in several ways, but one of, them, one of them was the explosive, unstoppable growth of the church. See, if the body had been taken out of the tomb and moved or misplaced or lost or whatever, when the church started going gangbusters, all they do is produce the body and it's over. And here's the other thing too. The disciples. The disciples. They were the ones who were the running away scared ones, the nowhere to be found ones, the hunkered down in the upper room and maybe this will all be over soon ones. And yet, these are the same disciples that after seeing Jesus raised and appearing to them, these are the ones that preached boldly. So listen to Peter. So you remember Peter in the, um, in the, uh, in the court of the high priest in John chapter 19, he's out warming himself by a fire. He's identified as one of Jesus' disciples. And what does he do? Not me. Says it three times. Calls down curses of heaven if he were to be found out to be one of Jesus' disciples. Not the guy. Look at what happens now in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, the disciples, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? This was a miraculous healing that had just happened. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I don't know about you, but fishermen who run away scared don't all of a sudden get the this, the wherewithal to stand before the high priest that had just executed their Jesus and proclaim boldly something entirely different. Belief, belief you see, is, is much more than, than a, an acceptance of facts. Belief is a gift that springs forth from new birth. Belief is the foundation, the bedrock. It's believe into. We're believing into something. We're staking everything on this thing. Belief is what happens through new birth. 
when God resurrects from the dead. But Paul doesn't just say you should believe. He says that you should believe in your heart. Why does he say that? He's not saying that your belief should just be heartfelt, as if to say that you should just really mean it and be really emotional about it. Because in the, in the Bible, when you think about what it means to have your heart engaged in something, the heart is the center of your being. It is what controls your thoughts and your emotions and your deep desires and ultimately influences the choices that you make. We are a people who are moved by our love. We are a people who are moved by, um, by what we love the most. Our choices are just expressions of our deepest held loves. You understand that, right? Like if you put down in front of me, um, if you put down in front of me um, a bowl of M&Ms and a steak, I'm going to eat a steak every time. Why? Because I love it. It is delicious, and I don't like candy. My actions are just expressions of my deepest held loves. That's all it is. So what does it mean to to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead? It means that we are convinced down to our core that we tried self-rule and failed that we are not fit to be kings of our own lives, much less kings of the world, and that it is only Jesus who is that, and that this Jesus, the one who was crucified and dead and buried for the sins of you and I, the things that we have overtly done and the things that we should have done but didn't, that this Jesus is the one who, out of love, took our guilt on himself and paid the penalty for our sin, and that it is this Jesus that was raised from the dead. His sacrifice was acceptable, and that through him we will be saved. But that, that's where we find the last question. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? The world, listen, the world is full of cheap things. We've noticed in our house how appliances seem to break more and more and more readily. We look at our parents with some degree of, of wonder as they have a washing machine that has kept going for 25 years. The world is full of cheap things. The world is full of cheap tricks, magic fixes, silver bullets. But when it comes to you and I, listen, we're the worst at it. We're the worst at it. We want grace without the cost and without the consequences. We're tempted to trade in cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian, said this. He said, cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. See, we can say, well, yeah, I know I did some bad stuff, but it's fine. No, no, it's not, you see. It's not fine. If it were fine, Jesus didn't have to die 
God could have just said, you're right, it's fine, carry on. But instead, God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin, the penalty that you and I deserve, so that we would be saved. And, and again, I'm trying to unpack words that have fallen into the realm of Christian ease. I can't stand Christian ease, because the problem is we, we trade in words um, so readily and easily that they lose their intended meaning and end up picking up whatever meaning we want them to mean. It's kind of like whatever you put in the refrigerator ends up smelling like whatever else is in the refrigerator, okay? So let's not do that. Let's actually talk about what the words mean. When it means that we're saved, we're saved from something, we're saved for something. Cheap grace will never save you. Cheap grace will never save me. It may make you feel better in a moment, but it'll never set you free because it doesn't change you. It's only costly grace that changes you. Only the power of God through Jesus Christ can bring us from death because that's where the Bible says each of us is. The Bible says that we're dead in our sins and without help, we're, we're without help and without hope. But God, God triumphed over death, but that isn't the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. So we're saved from sin and death through costly grace. But not only are we saved from sin and death, we're saved for something. So what about that phrase, costly grace? I thought you said that salvation was a gift. Isn't it free? I didn't say the cost was yours to bear. Jesus gave his life and took the cost. And that's an important thing to realize. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, tells the story of a woman at his church who had recently begun to comprehend how grace was incredibly costly. Here's the story that he tells. He says, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replies something like this. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I'd be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it's really true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. God's grace transforms and changes. It is where true life is found. It's where true freedom is found. Ask anyone who's experienced this. They are different because they have been made new. This isn't the power of positive thinking. This isn't somehow making yourself have a better day. It's because you've actually been changed God, the power that brought Jesus out of the grave is the same power that is at work inside you. And because of that power, we have new life, a changed life, a heart that was turned in on itself, corrupted and calloused, is now a heart that sees God, that loves God and loves people. 
This is not something that you do for yourself. This is something that's done in you and to you and for you, but it's not done by you. It's done through the power of the resurrected Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, we see something else amazing. So they'd gone to the tomb. They'd gone to embalm the body. There was no body there to embalm. Later that day, there are some disciples that are walking down the road. They encounter a man. And the man asks them a question. Why are you so incredibly sad? And they said, didn't you hear? They killed Jesus. And this man, talking to them on the road, whom we know is the risen Jesus, opened the scriptures and began to teach them how everything pointed to him. And verse 32 is an amazing verse. I want you to hear what it says. In Luke 24, verse 32, they said to each other after this man had gone, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Something was happening deep inside them because they had encountered the risen Christ. Look, in the days following the resurrection, those who encountered the disciples and heard the good news of Jesus being raised from the dead asked the most important questions that, they, that could be asked. In Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, listen, they had just heard Peter preach a sermon. They were cut to their heart. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Friends, if Jesus is who he says he is, if the resurrection is true, it's Pascal's wager that I told you about a few weeks ago. Like, all this could not be true, okay? And we get to the end and we die and we die and whatever, okay? My life was still, I would say, infinitely better um, because there was hope. But if it is true, right, and, and it is true, then those that are banking that it's not have everything to lose in the life to come. They said, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, listen, today is the day of resurrection exclaimed. And today, for you, it can also be the day of resurrection experienced. Repent of your sins, turn away from them and turn to Jesus. Whether you've never followed Jesus before or whether your love for Jesus has grown cold and distant, listen, God is not ticked off at you. He gave his son so that he could rescue you, to resurrect you, to redeem you, to restore you. This is the hope of the gospel that we have. Repent of your sins. Turn away from them and turn to Jesus. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you can be saved. The story of life eternal is not being cryogenically frozen and hoping that we somehow figure out how to defeat death and aging. I don't care what the TV commercials are trying to sell you. The hope of life eternal is in Jesus. And friends, listen, there are people here today that need to stop pretending that their hearts are not burning within them. Let today be the day of salvation. I and our elders will be here all day. I mean, you know, we'll order pizza if we need to. 
today is the day of salvation because Christ is risen. He is reigning. We join our voices together with the church who has said, great is the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Hallelujah.